this morning we have a special guest uh, who's going to be bringing the word for us. I want to invite Brett Landry, Pastor Brett Landry, to come forward. Um, some of you, this is kind of crazy, some of you don't know who Brett Landry is, which is kind of wild to me because uh, Brett is a pastor of our South Vancouver, our Christ City South Vancouver Church, uh, and he's the one um, under under his leadership and with the, the wonderful people at the South Vancouver Church who planted Christ City Kitsilano. Uh, so um, I want you to know something about Brett. Uh, I have the joy of, of seeing him all the time, every day. Uh, he likes to not be seen, actually. So he's not preached here since 2018. And he's a little bit nervous about the things that I'm going to say, but I told him that I was praying this morning and remembering all the ways that he's been such a blessing to me personally, but actually a blessing to all of you guys, though you don't even know it. And I just want to give glory and praise, not to Brett, but to God. Uh, for that. I'm just so thankful to God that, that Brett has served behind the scenes, laboring and praying for and encouraging us in our growth here as a local church uh, for the last almost six years now. It's been a long time. So um, I always want to praise God for that. I'm excited for you guys actually to, to get to meet him and to hear his voice uh, in the preached word this morning, but also to hear more of an understanding and a sense from Brett in the vision that God's given to him to lead us as a network of neighborhood churches. Um, so with that, can I pray for you? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, Father, I am so grateful for Brett. God, I'm thankful that you have gifted this man for your glory, for the building of your church. And Lord, would you work powerfully through him right now by your Holy Spirit to lead us, Lord, to teach us, to, to grow us in our eagerness to evangelize those who've not yet come to know Jesus Christ. Lord, to love our neighbors, to love those that you've placed in our midst, Lord, that we can serve them and help them to grow into maturity in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you give us more and more of a vision for mission, the mission that you've given to us because we are your church. We've been entrusted with this precious news, this precious life that is in Jesus Christ, that we would show it forth uh, broadly and eagerly. So Lord, would you bless this man and use him for your glory now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, please stand for the reading of God's word. Today um, is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As you're seated, I would love to just pray for our time in the scriptures today. Father, we're so grateful that we can open your word and we see the words of Jesus and we're so strengthened by the presence of your spirit with us, even, even strengthened by being here with one another, not feeling alone in our walk with you. And so I just pray that our time together uh, would continue that, that we would be strengthened in our resolve to serve and glorify you in all things and also that you just fill us with joy as we look at a great passage and, and then some others as well. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Brant said, my name is Brett, and I'm part of the South Vancouver Church. Um, and I have a bit of an odd role um, within our network of churches um, in the sense that uh, uh, the elders of our church and our churches have tasked me to give some oversight to the general uh, overall direction of things that we're doing. And so that means I get to be very involved in actually this Surrey church plant just by way of working with Daniel and getting excited about all of that and, and just coming alongside all the other churches. And, and so the, the South Vancouver team has freed me up to do a little bit of that. And one of those things I, guess I get to do today 
and it's just to be here with you. Brant invited me. I, I was talking with Brant uh, and Jake, who's the pastor of the Christ City East Vancouver. And uh, I said, man, we should talk about, during Advent, we should talk about the vision of Christ City and who we are as a church and where we're going and the things that we want to give ourselves to. And, and then Brant and Jake both said, well, why don't you just come and do that? And so I said, sure, I could do that. I could do that. And, uh, and it's my absolute joy to be able to do it. Um, I do want to talk about the vision of Christ City. But before I can talk about the vision of Christ City as a, as a network of neighborhood churches, before I can do that, I, we got to talk about the, the mission of God. And before we can talk about the mission of God, the, the mission that God has given to his people and that we live into, we've really got to talk about who we are as Christians, who we are as followers of Jesus. So we're going to do that today just by looking at three separate points that are all integrated, but three separate points. We're going to talk about a salt and light people with a sentence sending mission and the Christ city vision. Salt and light people, that's going to tell us who we are. Sent and sending missions going to tell us what we're called to do. And then we're going to narrow that focus into what we believe we're called to do as a particular church, a particular network of neighborhood churches and how we can uh, begin just to see this come to life. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, which comes from the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. This is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 5 is uh, it, this is the center of Matthew 5, but Matthew 5, the first of the three chapters, we call the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew's gospel. I'm going to read it again for you because it's so good. Matthew 5 verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Look at the, the first bit of verse 13. It says, you are salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. I just want you to not miss this. Just, just don't miss this. It says, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus tells people who they are before he tells them what to do. And it's a little thing. It's like one of those little things that nerdy pastor guys like Brant are going to highlight all the time. Jesus is not saying who they ought to be. You ought to be salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. It's actually very helpful just to notice this. This is Jesus as he's gathered his people, his disciples together, and he has sat down up on the mount and he's begun to teach them about the way of his kingdom. As he's doing that with his followers, he says, you are salt of the earth. Not you ought to be, but you are. In, in some other religious worldviews, you actually need to become what you should be before you can be accepted. Christianity is completely different. Christianity is totally different. In Christianity, you are accepted not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of Jesus' performance for you. In Christianity, you then become what you already are because you've already been accepted. Rather than in other religious worldviews where you need to become what you should be so that you can be accepted. There's a massive difference between those two. In other religious worldviews, you need to earn a right standing before you can receive your identity as, a, I don't know, an enlightened person or, or whatever particular worldview you're engaging with. But in Christianity, you receive your identity first without earning it, without having any merit on your own, and then you live into it. So Jesus says you are salt of the earth. 
you are not able to stand before God because of how well you've performed. You can stand before God by grace, through faith, in Jesus because of how well he has performed for you. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might think there's a bunch of people who are trying to, trying to be good enough for God to love them. And, and, and I mean, in a certain sense, yeah, we're trying to live lives that are faithful to him, all of that. That's true. That's a good pursuit. But not so that we're going to be loved. We're actually doing all those things from a place of knowing that we already are loved. It's a very different. It's a, it's a total inversion from the way that religious worldviews work in the world. Christianity is entirely unique in this end. So Jesus tells us who we are before he tells us what to do. And then what does he, what does he tell you? What does he, what does he say? Verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I can guarantee you this. I can guarantee you this. You've got salt in your house. You've got salt in your house because it's tasty. You'd also, there's a whole, a whole line of thought to go on this. You'd actually die without it, which is very interesting. You need to have a certain amount of salt, but if you have too much of it, it'll kill you. Fine line. It's a fine line. Um, in my household, uh, we're from Alberta. We're from central Alberta. We're from rural central Alberta. We're from a very small town, even on the scale of rural communities, which means that I grew up as one of the only kids from town, which was a town of 700, um, surrounded by farming communities. And I say all that to say I love meat. And salt is wonderful because it brings out the flavors. It's one of the things that salt does. The people that Jesus is speaking to would have had salt for flavor, maybe, but the, the primary use of salt 2,000 years ago, particularly in the ancient Near East, with the climate and, and the weather being what they are and that you couldn't plug in your deep freeze anywhere, was that they used salt to preserve things from rotting. And so you would preserve your food with salt. Now, if I'm honest, when I look at this passage and it says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? I've personally never known salt to lose its saltiness. <laughs> it's like saying the water lost its wetness. It just doesn't make any sense. Salt is salty. When the reason that we say that, the reason we, we, we would not have any kind of category for salt losing its saltiness is because our salt is remarkably stable in its chemical makeup. But that phrase said to people in ancient Palestine, ancient Near East 2,000 years ago, that salt has lost its saltiness, that's a very normal statement. They would have understood that immediately. We don't understand that because our salt doesn't lose its saltiness. That salt that you bought that's at the back of your baking cupboard, you know, the salt in the box with the little metal thing that cuts your finger every time you open it? And it's hard as a rock because we live in a humid climate and you forgot that it was there. And then when you run out of good salt, you have to go to that salt. You got to take the thing and you got to punch the box so that it breaks it up. You've got the same salt problems I have. I understand this. They didn't have that problem. They didn't have that going on. Salt could have lost its saltiness to these people that Jesus is speaking with because we have refinement systems today that they didn't have 2,000 years ago. The salt that people used in the region of the Dead Sea was what they would do, they would scoop it up off the ground. It was like a white powder and it had all kinds of different minerals in it and some of that was salt. But here's what could happen. You have all this powder that you're going to use to preserve a piece of meat or whatever it is that they're trying to preserve. But if it's not salty, it's lost its saltiness, the salt could actually get washed out of it and it would still look the same. So now you've got white powder left that is just a bunch of minerals that doesn't have any salt left in it. And what's it good for? Throwing on the road. <laughs> it's useless. 
salt can lose its saltiness. And if its saltiness has been washed out, what is it good for? Really nothing. And that's the point Jesus is making here. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness. If you're washed out, what happens is you lose your distinctiveness as a follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying, you can't then any longer do what you're called to do because you won't be who you're called to be as it relates to the world around you. He, what he's saying is that we can't bring our contribution as Christians to the world, to the broader culture, if we lose our distinctiveness as Jesus' people. We're no good to anybody if we lose the distinctiveness of who we are as the salt of the earth. We don't serve anybody by becoming like the world. We serve the world by offering a countercultural, Christ-like community. You are the salt of the earth. Then in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, what does it say? Jesus says, you are. Not you ought to be. You already are. (laughs) By virtue of being in relationship with the light of the world, Jesus says, I am the light. By virtue of being in relationship with the true light, you then are a lesser light, reflect, reflect, refracting, refracting, or reflecting God's glory to the world. You are the light of the world. He tells us who we are before he tells us what to do. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but lifts it up. You got to think, not like today where we walk into a room and we turn a switch, but you'd have to go through the work of lighting a lamp and there would be no other light in the house if it was dark. You would not light a lamp and then put something over it to cover the light. You would light a lamp and he would lift it up high so that it would shine light into the whole room. And Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. Don't hide that. You can't be the light of the world and shine the light of Christ if you are hidden away or withdrawn. See, light illuminates the way. Light exposes darkness for what it is. And we don't serve the world by leaving the world in darkness and turning down the brilliance of our light just to fit in because we carry the light of Christ. And we're no good to anybody if we go incognito with the light we have and indeed the light we are. Now, salt and light. Draw those two things together. What is Jesus getting at? The countercultural community of Jesus' people are the salt of the earth and are the light of the world. And as the salt of the earth, we are called to maintain a Christ-like distinctiveness. And as the light of the world, we are called to engage in a Christ-like mission. This is our way of being. This is actually the way the church of Jesus Christ engages with the culture around us. And we've actually, we have both of these impulses in a prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. He's praying and he's asking our heavenly father to do magnificent things through his people. It says in John 17 verse 14, he says, this is Jesus praying. He says, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, just as I am not of the world. What did I do? I didn't ask that you take them out of the world. I can read, I promise. Second half of verse 15, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. So Jesus is saying that our call is that we are not of the world, 
just as he is not of the world, but that, but that he wants us in the world in the same way he was in the world. I think he's saying he wants us to be a countercultural people, not a conformed people. Distinct light. I think it's right that we're called to be in the world, not of the world, but I, if I could press it one step further, it's not just maintaining distinctiveness and shining light, but it's to recognize that there's an intentionality behind that. It's not just who we are, but then it is, once we understand who we are, what we're called to do. Just look at John chapter 20. Jesus already referenced this in John 17, but I want to show you in John 20, verse 21. After his resurrection, Jesus is with his disciples, and he gathers them together, and he commissions them. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. The Father did not send Jesus to blend in. He did not send Jesus to compromise. He did not send Jesus to lose his distinctiveness. Jesus was set apart and holy, and he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Father sent Jesus into the world to shine as the light, revealing and illuminating so that we would know how loved we are and how we can be saved. And we are called to be in the world, not of the world, in the same way as Jesus. But even better is to recognize that in the same way as Jesus, we are not of the world, but sent into the world. There's an intentionality from God for us in how we live our lives. Distinct light and sent. This is what it means to be the countercultural community of Jesus' people. It's what it means to be the salt and light. And the dual images of salt and light reveal two aspects of our witness that as Christians, it's very difficult to balance. It's distinctiveness from the city while at the same time remaining in engagement with the city. It's difficult. Is it only difficult for me? I'm sure it's difficult for you. There's a distinctiveness. And you know, Jesus was a perfect example of both. He was perfect. Salt and light people, it's who we're called to be. And we have a sent and sending mission. It's the second thing we want to look at. We have a sent and sending mission. The question is, what does it look like for us to be salt and light people as a church participating in the sent and sending mission of God? Jesus was sent and he now sends us, but how do we emulate that? Look at Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Very interesting. Antioch was this city that a bunch of Christians fled to from Jerusalem when there was persecution in the very early church. So they fled about 500 miles north and they ended up in Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire of the first century third largest city. It was arguably the second or third most influential city in the Roman Empire. It was massively multicultural. This was not like your monocultural city. This was a Roman Empire metropolis. People from all over that empire have moved there for a variety of reasons, but Antioch was a multicultural city. People from all over, even as we just read in the text. About 250,000 people, which at the time was a massive city. And it was also, it tells us in Acts chapter 11, the first place that Christians were called Christians 
It's the first place the followers of Jesus were called Christians. And when they called the, the followers of Jesus little Christs, it was not polite. When they called them Christians, they meant it in a derogatory manner, which because Christians are Christians, we took it on and said, praise God. I'm like Jesus. I'll take that insult and I'll turn it around. And God does redemptive work like that all the time, doesn't he? And the church in Antioch were all in on mission. They were all in on mission. We see that they are fasting and praying and they're going to then lay hands on Paul the apostle and his buddy Barnabas and they send them on their way to go and preach the gospel where the gospel had not yet been preached. So Antioch becomes this sending point where they begin the first missionary church planting journey. They begin it in the power of the Holy Spirit with the support of their sending church. In Acts 13 and 14, you can read about this. It says that they went from city to city preaching the gospel. They evangelized in these cities and they made disciples in these cities and Paul had his assassination plotted in one of these cities. And then he was stoned and left for dead in one of those cities. And then doing something that I think is a bit counterintuitive, they went back to all of those cities. They go back to the place where his assassinations plotted, where they stoned him and where they rejected him. And they go back and they make sure that the people who came to Christ in their missionary work understand how to be organized as churches. And he appoints elders in all of those churches. And then they go back to their sending church in Antioch. They make this big loop and they go home. It's very interesting. I want you to notice something. When the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas on this journey to preach the gospel where the gospel had not yet been preached and to plant churches where there were no churches, I just want you to notice who's involved. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 2, just one more time. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, so who was involved? Well, the Holy Spirit, he spoke so here's, here's what I want you to do. And then who else is involved? Well, it's the whole church. <laughs> it's the whole church. Two were sent and the rest did the sending. But everyone was involved in this missionary journey. And, and when Paul and Barnabas came home from their missionary journey, planting churches in places that there were no churches, who did they come to share the testimony with? Who did they gather together to talk about God's faithfulness? Who did they come to celebrate the fact that many had turned to the Lord in faith? Just, just look at verse 27 of Acts chapter 14. When they come home at the end of the journey, it says, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They're sent out by their sending church in the power of the Holy Spirit with fasting and prayer. And then they go and they do the work and they come home and they gather everybody together and they're going to go, you don't even understand what we saw God do. And we want to celebrate it with you who sent us. There's a togetherness and a community going on at the church in Antioch that is all about out there. Paul and Barnabas were not radical loners. They didn't just venture off into the unknown. They were sent missionary church planters who had the backing of a church at home. I just want you to see it was the whole sending church because this is what drives our ministry at Christ City. Some are sent and some do the sending, but everyone is involved in the missional work of establishing new gospel preaching churches. We're all participating in this. They'd been sent by those who did the sending. 
And it was all done in a partnership with the gospel that the fame and deeds of God would be made known in their day. And, and when we try and plant a new church, which we're trying to do next year, and Lord willing, we will, it's also the fame and deeds of God can be known in our day. But the question is, what compels those who are sent and those who do the sending? What's, what's compelling these people who are doing this kind of work, this local church to send away to their best and brightest? They've got Paul and Barnabas. These are like A++ missionary leaders. Like we're talking about a couple thousand years later, just so you know that's categorically A++. I think that's how it works. What compelled them to do that? What compels them and motivates Paul and Barnabas themselves to venture off into hostile territory? What keeps a person motivated when they have had their enemies plotting their assassination, where they stone you and leave you for dead, and then you go, hey, let's go back to that city. Maybe we'll be quiet, but let's go back and see how they're doing. And I guess the question is, why would generation after generation of Christian missionaries do this over the last 2,000 years? Just moving out, 2,000 years of consistent, some of the greatest stories that we have are people who've done this. Like, I know sometimes this is a weird thought, particularly if you've not been part of a church planting church before, but every church was planted. Like, just because you drive by a 125-year-old building doesn't mean that somebody didn't, get sent out to do that. So if it's a 125-year-old building that was built, probably five years before that, there were some people who were sent out to go and establish a new church in the city of Vancouver. And they showed up and they had nothing and they had no one and they started sharing their faith and maybe they had a little team of people with them, but probably they had a sending church back home. Every church has been planted. Some of the best churches that the world will ever know have not yet been planted. That's what I think. So why would we keep trying to do this? What, what compels them to send? What compels Paul and Barnabas to go? What keeps people in hostile territory motivated? What, what, what helps us to see, like, like why 2,000 years of Christian history do we just see people traveling all over the globe doing this? Why? The answer is Jesus. It's a very simple answer. It's the same answer the kids down the hall are learning probably this morning, whatever the question is. <laughs> the answer is Jesus. I didn't get to go to kids' church when I was a kid because I didn't grow up in the church, so I still do it now. What's the answer? Jesus. It's a fantastic answer. It's the way of Jesus. He said, as the Father sent me, so I now send you. It's the way of Jesus. These are people who've had real encounters with the real crucified and risen Jesus. It's transformed their life. Because when you come to Jesus, something happens. He makes you his own. And you then take on the burden that he has for the lost. This happens. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's the compassion of Jesus for the lost that drives the mission of God. Nothing else. It's a a gut level compassion. It's remembering what it was like to live apart from Christ. Some of you remember what it was like to live apart from Christ and how difficult and challenging and torturous in the sense of what was going on in your soul. I remember that. I was lost. God got a hold of me. Some of you have been Christians since like you were born. 
You were just raised in it. You don't really know what it's like to walk apart from Jesus and praise God for that. That's like my wife. She's like, I don't know when I gave my life to Jesus. I think I gave my life to Jesus as soon as I could talk. And I never stopped giving my life to Jesus. And that's true of her. So what she does is sees the city around her just running headlong into destruction. And she has compassion for those people who do not yet know him. That's what compels us to implore people to be reconciled to God through the saving work of Christ. It's the mission of every follower of Jesus and every church community. Look at Matthew 9 again in verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you notice that the compassionate mission of Jesus begins in prayer? And do you notice that the missional work of the church in Acts 13 that we read, it began in fasting and prayer? Do you see this? That's not what my sermon's about, but it's there. Prayer. We are called to be salt and light people. He's, he's called us salt and light people. This is how we then live. This is who we are. It's then how we live. We have a sent and sending mission, just like Jesus. He was sent, now he does the sending. We have been sent, and now we continue to do the sending. And I want you to see that this mission is globally shared. This is true of all Christians in all places and all times. Now, the way we do that is more narrowly contextualized to the time and place that we live. And that's why we're going to talk about the Christ City vision. It's just an application of God's mission. God's mission applied locally in the sense of how we feel called to walk that out as a network of neighborhood churches. We'll talk about vision. The vision of Christ City Church is to establish a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to meet the demands of city ministry and small enough to maintain community. Simple. I'll say it again. To establish a network of neighborhood churches that are large enough to meet the demands of city ministry and small enough to maintain community. Um, how big is too big? I don't know. South Van, we have three gatherings and it stinks. I'll tell you that right now. I don't like it. People in the first gathering don't know the people in the third gathering. And then if you're the preacher, you just basically exist for the rest of the day once you're done. <laughs> it's hard on our volunteer teams. The band gets there at seven. They're not done till one. It's just not good for community. It's not good for cohesion. We'd like to send some more people out to plant churches. So if you know a church planter, connect them with me. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. We want to plant out as the South Vancouver church again. One of the reasons we, we need to do that there is because we don't have enough, we, we're not going to be able to send enough people to Surrey to, to change the way that is. How small is too small? Well, if you can't do ministry as a local church, then it's too small. So we don't have a number on that. But what we know is that we feel called as a network of churches to establish churches that are large enough to meet the demands of doing ministry, but small enough to maintain community. And it's important that all of that, whether it's large or small, have an outward view of the people around us that we're called to reach with the good news of the gospel. Very simply, we think more people in Vancouver need to meet Jesus. Millions of people in Metro Vancouver are facing eternity separated from God. And if you just let that sink into your heart, maybe not now, maybe now, let that sink and settle in your heart. Um, we, we have the message of life. Man, it's Christmas time coming. It's Advent. Every place in the city is playing like hymns in the shops just with no knowledge. I mean, my wife's just pumping this Justin Bieber album. It's driving me nuts. Just people love and Christmas music, right? 
Don't tell her I said that. <laughs> I'm kidding. So much Justin Bieber. So why plant a network of neighborhood churches then? Okay, we, we want to see people come to Christ. We know who we are. We know what the mission is that we've received. We're sent and sending. We want to be, why a network of churches? Why not just a bunch of standalone churches? That's a great question. We're actually really open to that. Um, in fact, our church actually helps people do that. And we do a lot of training and, and some partnership with helping people do that. Um, so far, we've just had people who come to work with us and then they wanted to plant a Christ City Church. So we just keep doing that. But we, we'd love to plant independent churches as well. The network idea, I, I think, is kind of unique and important and um, it makes sense to me. I just want to show you two pictures and then I'll be done. I just want to show you two pictures uh, of what we have going on. The first picture is of hydrangea flowers. Aren't they pretty? Blue and white and pink. Hydrangea flowers. How many of you are gardeners and you know what a hydrangea flower is? How many of you are like me and you have no clue? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a gardener. I don't know if I've ever made anything successfully grow, except one time I planted rosemary and I, I just, I crushed it. I was a very good gardener. And then people told me that rosemary takes nothing. It's like a weed. And I went, oh, I guess I'm not a good gardener. But um, I don't know a ton about flowers, but I know people who do. And I've talked to them and I read these uh, articles that they send me so that I understand what goes on. Hydrangea flowers, uh, all three of those flowers could have come from the same batch of seeds. They produce different color flowers based upon the soil they're planted in. So the color of flower is not built into the DNA of the seed. The color of flower comes from the pH of the soil, the acidity of the soil. So if you take the same seed and plant it in three different uh, soils, you would get three different color flowers. They've got the same, I don't know if this is the right biological word to use, but the same DNA, so to speak. Like they're the same seed, they're all hydrangeas, but they look different based on the soil they're planted in. Like when you plant a hydrangea, you shouldn't expect it to just grow thistles. It's going to always be a hydrangea that, that grows. You wouldn't plant this seed and expect it to, you know, be apples. And you go, oh, look, it's better. It's got fruit. We can eat it. Like it's not, it doesn't work that way. It's always, you plant a hydrangea seed, it will always produce a hydrangea flower. You're not going to get roses off of this beautiful flower in front of your house. You're going to get hydrangea flowers. But you don't know what color it's going to be until you plant them in the soil. I think the church of Jesus is kind of like this. Um, I've had the absolute privilege of being able to worship with churches around the world. And they're different. They're different. It's different when I'm in sort of southern U.S. mega church land where it's a lot of lights that move and a lot of smoke and a lot of, you know, style and flair. There's a particular setting that that works in because of the community of people that are there. It's very different than the church I was at in North Africa where I was there for a week uh, to help teach some of the pastors that they had brought in from across North Africa. And um, I came into the, to the compound under cover of night and they parked the car next to the door and they said, you go inside. And there I stayed for five days without leaving because having a white guy cruising around the neighborhood draws some attention that they're not looking for like I've been able to be in other countries in the world that are also restricted access countries where they pulled me up to the back door of an apartment building and we did the same thing and went straight inside to a back elevator that took us up to an apartment where we worshiped the Lord quietly in an apartment. You can imagine praising with your voice like this. 
so that the people around you don't know what you're doing. Because you don't want to get reported because they've turned an apartment into a church building. It's different. I'll tell you what. All of them are churches. Same seed, different soil, different expression. If I could say it this way, different color flowers. Always a hydrangea. An underground church in rural China is going to look very different on the surface than an urban church in a North American city. But they're both churches. They both worship. They both celebrate communion. They're going to both baptize new believers. They're going to enjoy the experience of Christian community. They're going to display the fruit of the Spirit. They're going to live into the gifts of the Spirit. They're going to have a familial love and devotion uh, among one another. They're going to repent from their sin. They're going to teach from Scripture. All the other things that make a church a church. This is what they're going to do. But I just need you to see that it's different depending on the soil. In the same way, Ephesians chapter 4 says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's all of that's the same, but the expression of it is different. Okay? Do you know how many churches there are in Vancouver? One. <laughs> it's a trick question. I'm sorry, I did that to you. There's one. There's one true church in Vancouver. A whole bunch of little expressions of it. You know how many churches are on Canada? Same answer. Same answer. <laughs> One. One church. One true church. They're all doing the same things, a different expression, different soil. Like if you're in Nunavut planting a church, it's probably going to be different than if you're in Montreal, which is also going to be different if you're in a town like I grew up in on the prairies which is also different if you're meeting in Kitsilano. And that's okay, because a church is a church is a church. Same seed, different soil. On a small scale, it's what we have in Vancouver. Vancouver is made up of 23 neighborhoods plus UBC. Metro Vancouver is made up of 21 municipalities plus one First Nation. And the region is just filled with this beautiful diversity from people all over the globe. And all of the neighborhoods and cities have a different feel to them. If you ever want to do an experiment and you want to get hyper-caffeinated, go to all the JJ Beans in one day. What you'll notice in Vancouver is that they're all different. The one on Commercial Drive is different from the one on Alberni down in the sort of financial district of the West End. It's different than the one on Canby. It's different than the one on Fraser Street. They're all different. They actually all reflect the neighborhood. It's very interesting. Different neighborhoods, different feel. Um, all kinds of diversity. And I, I could go into it. It's the same gospel planted in different soil. It's going to produce a different colored flower, but it's always going to be the church that rises up. Okay? If that's true, then why a network of churches? Why, again, not independent ones? Well, again, we're not opposed to that. One more picture. This is an aspen grove. This is an aspen grove in Utah. It is a picture that by sh it's sheer size and mass, this is actually the largest living organism in the world. It's an aspen grove in Utah. It's got 47,000 trees connected to one root system. And when they run the kinds of tests that biologists run, because remember, I'm not a biologist, uh, what they've found is that all of these trees have sprung up from the ground as part of the one original parent tree. So they share a genetic identical, uh, an identical genetic makeup. They have one parent tree. They're all interconnected, which means that when the one part of the 106-acre aspen grove when one part of it is suffering due to either drought or fire or whatever the case is, it can recruit resources in, in the way that it regenerates faster because it's recruiting resources from way, way, way far away. 
It can draw on the root system and it can replenish and it can grow. They're all interconnected. This aspen grove is nicknamed Pando, which is Latin for I spread, which is our hope as Christ City. We're a network of neighborhood churches who share a common foundation and a bunch of citywide resources. And that allows us to have the strength of a group larger than any one of us on our own. But also it allows us to properly contextualize to the neighborhoods where we're planting. And the root system is implied in the nature of the network, but it allows for unity with diversity. It's not uniformity. We wouldn't have a biblical counseling ministry without all three of our churches. We just wouldn't. For one, the biblical counselors are all from here. <laughs> we're, we're training now. We have other, we have, but they all started in here. Jonathan and Doug and, and a few others who began training and soon we had Jody training and all of a sudden now there's people in all three churches who are on the edge of being certified biblical counselors. But we can do that as a, a group, not just as one church. It'd be very difficult for us to do that. Church planting is very difficult when you're on your own. There's lots of other resources and things that we do together that are just reflective of it, not the least of which is the fact that as much as Brant is you know, effusive in his praise for me, praise to God about me, sure, okay, uh, I'm the same for him. The pandemic was hard for every single person. And I'm not up here to tell you it was harder for me as a pastor than it was for you, because I just don't think that's true. But it was still hard for us. And had we not, and we've talked about this, had we not as three churches been working together on everything, I don't know if all of us make it. The amount of pastors who quit during that season is shocking. And at the same time, being a pastor, I'll tell you, not shocking. We made it together. When I was having a bad day, I'll tell you, Brant would pick me up. And when he was down, I would do my best to do the same. And then you look at all the other people working across our three churches as, as one group, and there's just so much strength together. We're salt and light people. We're countercultural people, not conformed people. As salt, we're people of distinctiveness. And as light, we're people of mission. That means we are sent and sending. That's our call. Jesus was sent, and he now sends us. We have been sent, and we now send others. Jesus' compassion for the lost becomes our compassion for the lost. And that compassionate love compels us to continue doing things that are difficult and sacrificial. There's an intentional kingdom mindset with a network of churches that is a bit different than independent churches. But we continue to try and care for each other. As a group, we work together. Imagine Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch. And imagine, you know, there was a board meeting, because there's always a board meeting with churches. And the board meeting said this. They said, Paul and Barnabas are thinking that they might go off and do some church planting somewhere else. And one of the board members, because he's this guy, he goes, I have a plan. And you go, ooh, what's that? Have we offered them a compensation package that would keep them here? <laughs> I mean, Paul, he's been working all day building tents and then making disciples all night. What if we paid him so much that, that he wouldn't leave? And someone else goes, yeah, I like that. Paul's my favorite preacher. He's my favorite preacher. I don't want to send him off. Let's send off Johnny over here. Johnny drives me crazy. Let's send him to go plant a church. Let's keep Paul here. Paul's the best. And they get together and they come and present a package to Paul. Now, Paul's not going to say yes because he follows the leading of the Holy Spirit. But imagine if they had said, we're going to keep Paul and Barnabas here. 
you'd have to rewrite the book of Acts. Because from Acts 13 onward, it's just the story of Paul going and planting churches all over the then known world. It's not about us. Like I'll tell you right now, in East Vancouver, they're getting ready to send Daniel and Stephanie and their family to go plant a church. It would be much easier to keep Daniel at East Vancouver. Daniel's one of the good ones. I got some people we can send. It'd be much easier to, but no, the Holy Spirit has led him and his wife Stephanie to know and it's been affirmed by the elders and the rest of the team and we're gonna fast and pray and lay hands on them and send them off to plant a church. What can we give away? How can we do this? There'd be a void in Christian history if Paul and Barnabas didn't go and do what they were called to do. William Temple said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. And I think about that a lot. So three things real quick. Would you join us in praying? Because all mission starts in prayer. We want to plant a church in Surrey. Surrey is the fastest growing city in British Columbia. I actually think it might be the fastest growing city in Canada, but I haven't been able to find the data on that. It was a few years ago, the fastest growing in Canada, but it's, it's definitely the fastest growing in BC. There's a massive need there. Would you pray? Um, would you consider if God might be calling you to uproot from here and plant yourself in Surrey? Could be. Could be. People who joined Christ City originally in 2013, who came and, and helped us plant the church uh, in 2013, they had like, there were people who a month before that were like, hadn't even considered it. And God called them to, and they've been part of the church since. It's amazing. You might experience that. Be open to it. And then would you consider giving uh, sacrificially to that campaign that Jonathan talked about earlier? So that Christ City kids can, or Christ City Surrey can get everything that they need to start a new church and that we can continue on with our um, biblical counseling and all the different things that we want to be able to do. Talking about church planting, some are sent, the rest do the sending, but all of us are involved. All right, let me pray. Father, I thank you for this body of believers in Kitsilano. I thank you for their desire to serve and love you in all ways. And I thank you that though distant at times, physically, this is a church that I get to be a part of. In some small way, um, I know I get to be a part of this and that is a huge joy to me. And so I thank you for their staff and their elders and their leaders and their volunteers who are serving. And I just ask you that you would make them so fruitful and so joyful and that you would continue to add to their number those who are being saved. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.